Father in the heavens, uh, I understand, Father, we all understand sometimes our attention drifts during the service. We think about other things. One thought leads to another. My prayer with my brothers and sisters here is that whatever uh, nuggets of truth and conviction you have for each one of us here, that you give us the grace to catch it as it goes by. Of course, if there's any error here or something ill-conceived, cause it to fall to the ground. But we seek your grace, Father. In Yahshua always, we seek your grace to receive every good thing that might be in this material today. In the name of Yahshua, Messiah, always. Hallelujah. <coughs> First of all, a question. Is there a baptism today? No baptism today? How unusual. <laughs> okay. Okay. Hallelujah for all these baptisms. Um, friends, I'm Brother Michael A. Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. May all the grace of Yahshua be yours. The title of my remarks today is Slouching Toward Great Transgression. Today is Sabbath, December 19th in Holt Summit, Missouri at Yahweh's Restoration Ministry. I'm going to begin with a case study, just something I want to put out there, and then I'm going to immediately put it on the shelf. I'm going to kind of leave you hanging. I, I promise I'll make it good. I'll come back to it later. And then we'll get into the meat of the material. Oh, yes. I'm starting to time everything these days. I might as well time my own sermon. Let's see what happens. Okay. I'm going to ask the studio uh, control room to let the visuals on the slides be accessible to the people on the internet. Because there will be several in a row here that uh, we'll be looking at a graphic. This is a sky view of an intersection near Chicago. It's in the uh, northwest suburbs. I forget the suburb. But uh, the street intersection is North Lawrence Avenue and Okito. Just for those of you from the area, it's just a bit west of Harlem. On the southwest corner is a major produce market called Mariano's. Many of us from, many of us from Chicago celebrate Mariano's. But um, interestingly, in this aerial photo, there's a vehicle there that kind of represents mine. I'm eliminated using editing techniques. I took this photo from Google Earth, and I've illustrated now a whitish vehicle going north uh, about to enter the intersection from the south. Let's allow that to represent my pickup truck. This is a real life event. And I've kind of sketched in there a greenish truck. This guy wants to turn right. He wants to enter into an industrial park there. Please control room, keep it on the slides, please. Now that's a tight turn. In fact, if you look closely, you find the entrance to that street, if you're making that right turn for the green truck, the entrance is kind of pinched off if you look closely. There's another intersection he could have used to enter the industrial park. Yeah, I label it as big truck, right? He's a big truck. I may not have drawn him very big, but he was a big truck. He should have used this larger intersection a few blocks down, Harlem Avenue. It's got a lot more room to execute that turn. But anyway, back to my intersection. What he wanted to do was turn, and what he did was he turned right into me. Kaboom, right? He didn't hit me. He went right into me, nose to nose. Now, what he is expecting is for my vehicle, that whitish pickup truck, to go, to go south. 
And uh, I kind of illustrate that with the dark arrow. He's just assuming now that he's come right into my face. He's just presuming that I'm going to back up and accommodate him. I'm going to leave you hanging with that. I'd like you to have that in the back of your mind. Maybe the right and wrong of that situation might um, get to you like it did me. I certainly didn't like that. Because I can't, I can't tell in my pickup truck, I can't tell if there's a pedestrian behind me. Is there a little car behind me? How am I to know it's safe to back up? I was put upon to take a risk for this guy because he would not enter the industrial park through a more appropriate route. Here's a little outline of what we're going to talk about today. We will look at the unpardonable sin a little bit. The focus is going to be on presumptuous sins, but we're going to look at the unpardonable sin because there's, a, there's lessons we can extract from that. Uh, please let me throw out a, um, an appeal to the ministry. I do not want to give a sermon on the unpardonable sin. That's a high-voltage, high-octane, nuclear TNT dynamite topic. I don't want to talk about that. I want the elders to sort that out and provide right teaching. But we can extract features of that sin to know what big-time sin looks like. We're going to explore the spiritual states of mind that take you to the edge of being unforgivable. You know, when people want to ask about, hey, what's the unforgivable sin? I can only think of two motives. Either um, they, uh, like me, they want to stay 100 miles away from that. What's that unforgivable sin over there? What, what is that thing about? I want to know what it is so I don't go anywhere near it. Then there's other people who approach it from a different perspective, kind of worldly-minded. I don't think they're saved. They want to know what the unpardonable sin is so they can go as close as they can without crossing the line. Well, it turns out that's the zone we're going to explore today. Not quite the unpardonable sin, but getting close to it. And we'll study some life applications along the way. Control room, it's going to be, now from this point forward, it's going to be a bunch of boring slides, a bunch of words. This is actually my notes that you guys get to see on the fly. And um, I don't even know how to make them interesting or pretty. But I ask you to join along with me now as I develop this material to explore the boundaries of what is forgivable and how deadly and dangerous those zones are. Don't think in your mind, oh, I, I didn't do the unforgivable sin. I guess I can get out of this. Now, I've used this analogy before. If I start in Chicago and head southwest on Interstate 55, I can sometimes see the Sears Tower, the Willis Tower, in my rearview mirror. I can pull over and say, yeah, there it is. It's still there. It's still visible. I can make my way back to Chicago because I can see that giant landmark. But as I get farther and farther from Chicago, I lose sight of that giant skyscraper. And if I didn't have modern navigation tools, I'd be lost. And that's kind of what it's like when you drift too far from Yahweh. As you're drifting, you know his mercy is always there. You can, you can see his mercy from afar. But if you go too far into sin... You don't see the landmark. You don't see the monuments of his mercy. And you actually cannot make your way back because you've gone too far. And it's not like he's moved. It's not like Sears Tower has moved. You say, you've moved so far, it's hard to find your way back. 
And we're getting, oh yeah, one more thing. I want you all to resist the temptation to envision others for whom this material is applicable. As this unfolds, you're going to be tempted to think, oh, I know somebody who needs to hear this. Let me send them the link. Okay. No. No, I want you to think about how it applies to you. Okay. Let's talk about the unpardonable sin. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the Hebrew term ruach hakodesh, ruach spirit hakodesh, the holy. The Hebrew term means spirit of the holy one. Um, it's been personalized in modern translations to be the Holy Spirit. But even the Greek context, the, the syntax there, uh, conveys to the, the, the literal wording is spirit of the Holy One. Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, spirit of the Holy. Or in the Greek it says that too, the spirit of the Holy One. Blaspheming that spirit is an unpardonable sin. Now, where did this come from? It comes from Matthew 12, verse 31 and 32, and I'm going to read it for you. Yahshua had been accused of casting out demons by, the, by Beelzebub. And that's when Yahshua taps the brake. I'm sure he's got other things to talk about, but he had to tap the brake. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. What are some of the features of this sin? One is false accusation. He's not casting out spirits by Beelzebub. By the way, I like the way the, the Hebrew Matthew, the Shem Tob texts reads. He says to them, if I cast out spirits, that evil spirits by Beelzebub, why don't you guys cast them out? The Greek doesn't read that way, but the Hebrew makes it clear. Like, well, you guys haven't delivered any goods at all. Anyway, they knew better. This was a false accusation. I want you to, to go, you're not going to turn there, but to a, pa- a passage in John where a member of the council named Nicodemus came to Yahshua at night. That was the first edition of Nick at Night. Okay? He came to Yahshua, and he said, Hey, we know you are a prophet from Elohim. There's no way you could do these great things and not be a prophet from Elohim. They knew. They knew. And in their struggle to cope with the growing ascendancy of this great prophet, they level a false accusation. A knowingly false accusation. They knew better. So well, to pull a stunt like that, you need hardness of the heart, don't you? You've got to literally harden your heart against an innocent man. In the course of growing up, I've seen maybe one or two kids getting bullied in a schoolyard. I moved around so much that, uh, you know, it's not like I was in any one place long enough to see a lot of it. But I wondered from a distance, how could people be that way? Well, that's your carnal nature, maybe something visceral and instinctive at work. Why were they ganging up on this guy? Well, they had to harden their heart. One other thing about um, this false accusation is the onlookers have no way of verifying or debunking the false accusation. The crowds who heard that were maybe wondering, yeah, maybe he is. Yeah, maybe there's something wrong with this guy. How do they know? 
They'd have to hang around with him for a while to look at the fruits of his work. And they'd have to invest the time to look at the fruits. Well, anyway, there's a whole lot more to the unpardonable sin, but this particular episode is instructive. We're going to use this as a starting point to find out what great transgression looks like. Here we go again. I'm going to appeal to somebody to get a cup of water for me. I see a member of the security team is getting water. (laughs) Thank you. That hardening of the heart is a big one. When we talk about slouching into great transgression, a hardening of the heart is essential. You have to shut down your conscience. You have to shut down your critical thinking of yourself. You have to shut down self-examination. We're going to use these points and others to assess certain big sins. Come forward, brother. Thanks so much for that water. This happens every time. I'm going to have to start bringing it up here with me. I'm going to do a case study from Psalm 19. Now, we're not, you can read, open it if you want. But it starts out by saying, The heavens declare Yah's glory. And it describes learning from the heavens as though you're reading a book. Let's see, do we have that family from Wisconsin here? Where'd they go? Where's that lovely family from Wisconsin? I can't, nuts. I just wanted to ask a question while I was thinking about it. When I used to go to Eagle River. Oh, there you are. I used to go to Eagle River fishing when I was a late teenager. And sometimes the stars were so fantastic, you could reach out and touch them and grab them and bite them. Okay, I just want to know one thing. Is it still like that up there? Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. But when you look at the stars in a natural setting like that, you know, uh uh-oh, there's somebody bigger than me than put all this together. Someone bigger than me is running the universe. It's a glorious thing to behold. The heavens are like that. It has a kind of a power to convict you of sin when you think about it. But then Psalm 19 transition, it talks about how Yahweh's law is informative too. It purifies the soul, convicts the soul, convicts us of sin. And then the author of Psalm 19 transitions to a prayer. It starts in verse 12. He says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Who can understand his errors? He is starting to wonder about himself. He's doing self-examination. Are there sins in there I haven't got the spotlight on yet? Between the convictions you see looking into Yahweh's creation, by the way, you can do it in the daytime too, and the convictions that come from studying his commandments, he's starting to wonder, is there stuff in there I've overlooked? I got into the habit Through my middle age, I got into the habit of repenting at once of old sins from my youth. I wonder if some of you guys have done that. You say, that thing I did when I was a kid, that was so naughty. That thing I did as a young adult, that was so bad. I wonder if you guys have ever done that, where you say, there was a sin in there I forgot all about. The psalmist is wondering this. Then in verse 13, He says, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Well, what is this great transgression? What's this all about? 
Let's look at that word presumptuous there. I highlighted it in the, uh, in the slide. The word sins is in italics, which means it's not really in there. It just says, keep thy servant from presumptuous. Presumptuous what? Could it be presumptuous people? Well, if you hang around with presumptuous people, you're going to get presumptuous. When you get the full picture, the full story, observant Bible students will tell you, yeah, it's talking about presumptuous sins. And the funny thing is he doesn't want them to have dominion over him. Like this might be a secret sin, verse 12, something deep inside that's like a habit. For those of you who are struggling with sin, I want you to keep something in mind. There's a difference between sinning and practicing sin. There are people who practice sin. This is like their bag. This is their game. This is their repertoire. This is their approach to life. Constantly looking for an angle. Sinning is normal for them. This operates in a zone here. This topic operates in a zone where it's a part of your life, but you think you're okay. It's a part of your life, and you don't know you're doing it. He talks here also about the great transgression. We're going to look at the words presumptuous and transgression shortly to see what they mean. What kind of convictions would emerge if we looked at the Hebrew roots of these words? In verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Yahweh, my strength and my redeemer. Now, when I'm on my game, I I say that verse every morning. We're going to find later that that verse is actually the key to understanding everything else. Now, let's drill down to what some of these words mean. Just what do you mean, presumptuous sins? Presumptuous there in that passage is, Hebrews strong number 2086, Zed. And it means arrogant, presumptuous, and proud. Well, it comes from Hebrews 2102, Hebrew 2102 in the Strong's Dictionary. So now we look that up and we find it's uh, similar. It's Zud or Zed. It's a primitive root. It means you don't have to drill down any deeper. And it means to seethe. Figuratively, to be insolent, to be proud, uh, presumptuously, if it's translated as an adverb. And also that word sod, I had to look up the word sod. Dictionary.cambridge.org, you find out that sod is something or someone considered unpleasant or difficult. So now we're creating a cloud or a bouquet of meaning surrounding this word presumptuous for presumptuous sins. So I'm, oh, uh, is it on the next page? I don't know. Just in case, seethe means, oh, it's coming up. I'll show you what each of these words mean in a bit. But that one seethe, I had to look it up. So what do you mean presumptuous sins? At uh, at dictionary, uh, pardon, Cambridge.org, the word presumptuous says the following. A person who is presumptuous shows little respect for others by doing things they have no right to do. Yeah, they push the boundaries. By the way, it's understandable some of you find a little overlap between this material and the presentation I did on Strange Fire. There's a little bit. But this business of not respecting other people's spaces, other people's time, other people's resources, 
or even their sensibilities. One thing that's emerged, it's not in the notes or all, but I've noticed maybe once a year on Facebook, I'll find one of the saints post up something with profanity in it. Thinking, don't you know that that's got a bad word? What are you you putting that on your webpage for? When we're done, maybe I'll convince you that's presumptuous. And it's not enough to say, well, it's just what some other guy said, and I'm just putting it up there. No, I don't, there's no reason we should be ministering grace to the hearers. Well, those are some ideas about what this thing about presumptuous means, and uh, this great transgression, we're going to look at that too in a bit. The word seething means to feel very angry, but be unable or unwilling to express it clearly. Some people are walking around with a great deal of anger. Arrogant, to be unpleasantly proud and behaving as if you're more important than or no more than other people. Presumptuous, a person who is presumptuous shows little respect for others by doing things they have no right to do. Now these are heavy issues. In Psalm 19, the guy who's praying this, he prays as though this is a possibility for himself. And it is a great transgression to behave this way. He's worried. Hey, I'm worried enough to pray about this. Am I capable of doing this? Every one of us has events in our lives that we look back with horror and dread and we say, "Mm, I wish I had not said that. I wish I had not done that. These resources in the Bible that I'll be talking about, they draw attention to that stuff. It would be better that you be in a regretful mood now than later, because maybe you'll have a chance to go to the people you've affected. Let's talk about... uh, We'll be be talking about seething a little more later, because this list is going to grow. These features that have to do with presumptuous and great transgression. Angry inside. I have no use for anger management. I want anger resolution. I want closure. Arrogance, presumptuousness. Let's press on. When you enter the new covenant, part of the package is to develop relationships in which these attitudes can be detected and rooted out. We're supposed to be getting our hearts knitted together every Sabbath and at the feasts. And my invitation, it's painful, my invitation's out to you. If you want to tap me on the shoulder, say, Brother Mike, come on over here. You shouldn't have said or did that. It's better that you tell me. I think one of the blessings of having uh, Brother Terrell with me, uh, he uh, has stayed with me for a while. Uh, I think about three times now he's tapped me on the shoulder and says, Hey, Brother Mike, uh, and I think that was out of order, you know, Or he's admonished me in some way. But we are supposed to keep each other in line. These attitudes could continue for a long time and you don't even know it except for the feedback of those close to you. In Psalm 141 verse 5 it says, Let the righteous one smite me or reprove me in kindness. It is oil on my head, let not my head refuse it. We're going to do a case study from the Torah. In Numbers 15.30, it says, But the soul that doeth anything presumptuously, 
It says the word ought there. The old English word ought means anything. But the soul that doeth anything presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproaches Yahweh. Notice Yahweh takes this as an insult to his face. Anyone that acts presumptuously, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now the word presumptuously in Hebrew, literally, it's two words. It's hand high. Or, as the beloved elder Ralph Henry taught me, it means sinning with a high hand. To sin with a high hand. That gets back to practicing sin. Like this is part of my life. And I'm not going to change. This is who I am. Sinning with a high hand has a striking rhyme with the following passage from the great apostle. Hebrews 10.26 For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now this condition is rare. I have seen it and it is difficult to fix. There's one case I know for sure I've seen it maybe twice. Where somebody goes into, back into practicing sin with a high hand. You don't want to go there. Case study number three from the Torah, the stubborn and rebellious son. Now we're building up resources to understand what these great transgression states are. There's some that will emerge from this passage in Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. If a man have a stubborn son, pardon, a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, in that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of the, his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. Now that's repeated from the first verse in there. Stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones, that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Okay, we're going to look at the two key words in that passage, stubborn and rebellious. Stubborn is uh, Strong's Hebrew number 5637, sarar. It's a primitive root to turn away that is morally be refractory. Backsliding, rebellious, revolter, slide, stubborn. And the other one is rebellious. This one really jumps out at me, marah. Um, Students of the Hebrew roots approach to the Bible should recognize that word right away. Marah means bitter. A primitive root to be causative, make bitter, to rebel, bitter, change, disobedient, disobey, provocation, rebel. You get, I know I skipped some words there, but you get the idea. Stubbornness and rebelliousness go together. Rebelliousness has at its root what some, what some preachers will call roots of bitterness. So I've highlighted some of the key words there. Rebellious, stubborn, bitter, grievously, rebel. What else could we add along those lines? Stiff-necked, brazen-faced. This adds to the list of key words to understand what great transgressions are. 
seething, to feel very angry, but to be unable or unwilling to express it clearly. I know I've read this stuff already. Let's go through it again, though. Arrogant, unpleasantly proud, and behaving as if you're more important than or no more than other people. Presumptuous, a person who is presumptuous shows little respect for others by doing things they have no right to do. Rebellious, defying or resisting some established authority, government or tradition, insubordinate, inclined to rebel. Bitterness, a feeling of antagonism, hostility or resentfulness. Finally, stubbornness, unreasonably obstinate, obstinately unmoving, example, a stubborn child. Question, does any of this bear a resemblance to what's on the news wires today? Hmm? Who are these people who are burning and looting? They, they come from faraway places. Burning, looting, destroying, in some cases murder. I want to focus in on um, seething and bitterness. Because we are students of the new covenant. We are disciples of Yahshua. I've got to focus on those. Some of you in the sound of my voice have experienced some very ugly pains and hurts in your youth. Sometimes it's unspeakable. I was a young landlord in Chicago, around 20 years old. I, had a, I rented out an apartment downstairs. A small family was there, and that lad who lived there, I didn't know it at the time, but at some point in his formative years, he had something very ugly and unspeakable happen to him. And at night, he would take out his rage by kicking the wall when the fam- in his bedroom, the family moved out and the furniture was all gone. I saw all that plaster removed. It was the old kind of plaster with the lath and everything. And I had to replace it with uh, sheetrock. But some of us are carrying scars and baggage from the past. And sometimes it's like seething. And it's sometimes like bitterness. You talk to Christian counselors in the know, they'll tell you a good deal of the difficult cases they deal with in their assemblies are people who are dealing with bitterness and anger for bad things that happened. Can't cover the whole subject here now, but it is written that Yahshua came to bind up the brokenhearted. And he said in another place that you are clean by the words he spoke to us. If you're dealing with bitterness or pain from the past, you really want to get out, get that out of there. You don't want to hold on to it. You don't want to use it as a license for sin. Some people use their bitterness as a license for sin. <clears throat> you don't want that destruction. Go read Yahshua's teachings. Receive him. And allow his teachings to drain away that evil. It is written that he came to bind up the brokenhearted. He, re- he read that in the book of Luke in the synagogue. And so many people have this testimony. If they embrace him and make him the boss and abide in his teachings, they find the grace to overcome the bitterness and the anger. Those emotions will lead to great transgression if you don't resolve them. If it's of any help to you, the greatest injustice of the world was the execution of Yahshua, an innocent man. If you've suffered something unjustly like that, then you're his buddy. He knows all about it. 
Another case study from the Torah, cursing Yah's name. Exodus 20, verse 7, when the commandments are first given, it says, Thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh, the Elohim, in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. I'm highlighting that. Yahweh will not hold him guiltless. Now, there's many applications of this. Here at YRM, uh, we find enormous importance in making sure that Yah's name is not thrown aside. It's an important part of Yah's liturgy. Those of you who are new to this, if you have any doubt about the importance of Yah's name, all you have to do is read the Psalms and you find page after page, praise his name, glorify his name, do honor to his name. All the pagans get idols, that's what they get to worship. But we get to glorify a name. It is such a privilege to know this truth. But there's other ways of disobeying this commandment, and one of them is to just flat out curse him. There's a long passage here. Um, I don't like reading these long ones, but here we go. Leviticus 24, 10 to 16. And the son of an Israelitish woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and the son of the Israelite woman and a man of Israel strove together. Okay, so these two guys are fighting. And they're fighting in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name. Notice the wording here. It doesn't say the name of Yahweh. It says blasphemed the name. So everybody who reads this should know what name they're talking about. And cursed. They brought him unto Moses, excuse me, and his mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in ward that the mind of Yahweh might be showed them. Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, let all the congregation stone him. Thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curses his Elohim shall bear his sin, and he that blasphemeth the name. Notice again, Jesus says the name. You're supposed to know what name he's talking about. He shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger. I'm going to stop there. But looking at this case, there was anger involved. The son of an Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. There's some fighting going on. And sometimes anger leads to the craziest behavior. Sometimes it takes on a life of its own. You know, there's times I'm glad the common man doesn't know Yah's name. The way they fling around profanity out there. I'm glad they don't know it that much. But what I really want to underscore is there was no sacrifice available for blaspheming the name. He couldn't say, oh, I'm sorry, Uh, can I offer a bull or a goat or something? No. There's no way out. It's a dead-end street. So what can we add to the list? Is your reverence. So that list that I've been building, I'm going to add irreverence to the bottom. A lack of reverence or respect. Now this list is a bunch of stuff that uh, plays a role in great transgression. Seething, arrogance, presumptuousness, rebelliousness, bitterness, stubbornness, irreverence. You don't want to go there for even a minute. And it's not good enough to say, I was angry. You don't know where that's going to lead. Case study from Jezebel. Now this gets back to one of the prime elements in the accusation of Yahshua casting out demons by Beelzebub. This is a topic that's had me wound up for a long time. 
false accusation. The, the, I'm not going to read the whole passage. It's just a long one. I'm going to give you the highlights. It regards the vineyard of Naboth, 1 Kings chapter 20. It's almost the entire chapter. King Ahab desired a vineyard and offered money or else a better plot of land to the owner, Naboth. Naboth refused to release his family inheritance. So Ahab let Jezebel, his wife, use his seal to write letters and manufacture charges of blasphemy against Naboth. She had some guys lie under oath and say that Naboth cursed Yahweh and cursed the king. Naboth was stoned to death and Ahab got the vineyard. He was later confronted by Eliah, who pronounced the doom upon him. And even though he repented, Ahab repented seriously, a grisly prophecy of his death was fulfilled. In fact, it's fulfilled in the next chapter. False accusation. Just think about what's going on in the mind of someone who's willing to lie so that someone else dies. What kind of hardening of heart is at play? Well, they did it to Yahshua. Yahshua's murder was characterized by false accusations, hardness of heart, willful sin, and twisting of his words. Remember Yahshua, when he was arraigned, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? And he, he, he admitted to that. And so what they do, they, they take the fact that he says, yeah, I'm, I'm the Messiah, and you will not see me henceforth till I come again at the right hand of power, something like that. The priest tore his robe, which he's not supposed to do. See what happens when you get angry? You tear, tear, tear. He's not supposed to tear the robe. But they took his words and they twisted them. They went to Pilate and said, he, he's going to start a rebellion against Caesar. And this also touches on hate without a cause. Why would you hate somebody without a cause? Now, having come from Chicago, I've seen plenty of hate without a cause. Uh, primarily a racist kind of hate. And as I grew up, I, I couldn't figure it out. I can honestly could, just could not figure it out why people would act that way, why people would talk that way. And... Um, well, now today we've got new forms of racism. There's people who say, I'm racist because I'm white. If you can believe that. You know, I admit I'm, a, I'm ignorant of many cultures, most cultures. But that doesn't make me racist. I mean, there, there's, if that's racism, then everybody's racist. There's no way anybody could understand my culture or background. You know, but hate without a cause. That shows up in two Psalm passages, and Yahshua cites it. Psalm 35, 19, let not them which are my enemies wrongfully rejoice over me, neither let them wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. Psalm 69, 4, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then, then I restored that which I took not away. John 15, 25, Yahshua explains why he's going to get clobbered. But this come at the past that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. How do people snap out of that? They get to a place where they hate someone so much they're going to manufacture a false accusation. So we're going to add that to the list. Hate without a cause is another feature of great transgression. False accusations, hardness of heart. 
Case study number six, the Dreyfus Affair. I've only put a part of this on the slide. You can look, this is from history.com. Before I get going, how many of you have ever heard of the Dreyfus Affair? Very few. I found out about it several years ago. Just fascinates me. Maybe I have a fascination with people who throw themselves into the arms of great darkness in their own heart. This is a scandal that rocked France in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The Dreyfus Affair involved a Jewish artillery captain in the French army, Alfred Dreyfus, who was falsely convicted of passing military secrets to the Germans. In 1894, after a French spy at the German embassy in Paris discovered a ripped-up letter in a wastebasket with handwriting said to resemble that of Dreyfus. He was court-martialed, found guilty of treason, and sentenced to life behind bars on Devil's Island off of French Guiana. In a public ceremony in Paris, following his conviction, Dreyfus had the insignia torn from his uniform and his sword broken, and was paraded before a crowd that shouted, death to Judas, death to the Jew. They hated this guy for some reason. And all the press was against him. And you could talk to anybody and they'd say, oh yeah, everybody agrees. You know, he's got it coming. It was so hard to find anybody who was on his side. Two years later, 1896, the new head of the Army's intelligent units, George Picard, uncovered evidence pointing to another French military officer, Major Ferdinand Walson Esterhazy. Esterhazy, let's remember that. He was the real traitor. However, when Picard told his bosses what he'd discovered, he was discouraged from continuing his investigation. And he was transferred to North Africa and later in prison. So now those who are shining the light of justice on this, they're persecuted. Nevertheless, word about Esterhazy's possible guilt began to circulate. In 1898, he was court-martialed, but quickly found not guilty. So now they're clearing the guilty. And he later fled the country. I'd run too if I was him. After Esterhazy's acquittal, a French newspaper published an open letter titled, Je Accuse. (coughs) It's by a well-known author, Emile Zola, in which he defended Dreyfus, and accused the military of a major cover-up in the case. As a result, Zola was convicted of libel, though he escaped to England and later managed to return to France. So another guy casting the light on this thing, now he's persecuted. All because they want to beat up on this one guy. Now there's plenty of summaries of this on the internet, you can look it up yourself. But the defenders are persecuted, Everybody agrees. This is driven by the press. Now, this is an ancient problem. The pharaohs sometimes rubbed out the records of the previous pharaohs. The Bible talks about the lying pen of the scribes. Some of Yahshua's most bitter encounters were with the scribes of his time. The record keepers, the journalists, the writers. They can create opinion, and you think you're enlightened. In other sources, I found a letter that Dreyfus wrote from prison to his wife. He said, I'm covered with bugs. It's terrible in here. But he said, darling, he said to his wife, don't lose hope. Justice will prevail. Oh, yeah, the, that letter they found in a wastebasket in the German embassy. The writing had a resemblance to Dreyfus. And one of the reasonings they had to accuse him of guilty, they said, look, 
he tried real hard to hide his true handwriting. What a freaky warp. So in other words, it doesn't quite look like Dreyfus's handwriting, so we know for sure he's guilty. This is their thinking. Well, if you want to avoid if you want to avoid the great transgression, avoid mob stuff. Now, friends, this happens a lot on Facebook. People throw me throw things my way. This has happened within my family, my loved ones going back before Facebook. Well, people will come to me and ask me to get outraged by some outrage of the day. <clears throat> and I say, wait a minute, let's look at the facts. It's because I'm scared to death of this. Turns out that Dreyfus played a very important role in modern history. There was a fellow named Herschel, uh, Herzl, Theodore Herzl, who's the guy who got Zionism started. And he would have been writing about it for over a decade. When he heard about the Dreyfus affair, that made him more aggressive. And actually, the Dreyfus affair fueled the desire for the Jews to have their own homeland. This is an example of the Council of the Wicked, everybody feeding on each other. False accusations have been going on for a long time. But I urge you to take a look at the Dreyfus affair and weep. He was ultimately acquitted and exonerated. They actually tried him a second time on the same flimsy evidence. But he was pardoned <clears throat> and much later cleared. Case study number seven, the pain of false accusations. This is one for you parents. Bill Gothard, the evangelist, tells the story of a father on his deathbed, and he admits to his son that he often accused his son falsely. He's dying there, and he calls his son over, and he says, son, he says, I got something to tell you. He says, I know there are times I accused you falsely. I know that's happened. And, of course, the kid's heart awakens. He says, oh, my goodness, dad's going to come clean. And all these times he's hurt me with these false accusations. His dad said, yeah, there's, there's times when I accuse you falsely. But, you know, I'm sure there's times you did something naughty and I didn't catch you, so I guess it all evens out. And he ruined the whole thing. Be careful of these false accusations. In this nation, we have a desire to have all the facts. We don't want to accuse. We would rather a, a guilty man go free than have an innocent man punished falsely. But there's another case study. This is one you don't need a whole lot of cases on. I want you to think about it. If I'm accused accurately and I deny it, suppose I am accurately, properly accused of something I did wrong and I deny it, then I have falsely accused everyone else of lying. And sometimes we hear that in conversation. Hey, are you calling me a liar? I saw you do that. Think about it. If you deny your guilt with witnesses, now you've spread false accusations on them. That really disrupts this shalom of a, of a society. So let's look at an allegory for presumptuous sins. Most sins are like trap doors, which we learn to avoid over time. I've had to learn, look out for this, look out for that. People, places, and things create temptations for us. So most sins are like that. Bold or arrogant sins are like swinging doors which can be seen from afar. They require planning, vision, forethought, allocation of resources. Now, the swinging door gives the illusion that you can escape. Yeah, we'll work this out later. We can, we, we can make something happen. We, we, let's take the plunge now and look for grace later. Others found mercy. I can too. 
Presumptuous sins have this effect on the mind. Ah, yeah, I think I can go in and out of that door any time. But in fact, there is a more deadly trap waiting behind those swinging doors. And that's the, um, the cost of presumptuous sins. So here's a warning to all of you in the sound of my voice here at YRM today or in the outreach. Some of you today may be planning a presumptuous sin. Repent now because you may not find your way back. I don't know any case where anybody felt good about it. Buckets of tears. Don't think, well, I'll cry it off later. I'll burn it off later. No, it doesn't work that way. If you're planning something, any of you, you got something wicked in your heart, you've been architecting, envisioning, get on your knees, get on your face, whatever it takes, but renounce it now. There's a special feature of presumptuous sins. By the way, we're coming to a close pretty soon. Let me check the the time. Hey, I'm not doing too bad. Okay. A special feature of presumptuous sins. This is one I really want very much to throw the light on. Those of you who are parents might have had a situation where your kids are playing downstairs and uh, with, a, with a neighborhood kid. Then they all come up together, your kids and the neighborhood kid. And they say, hey, can Tommy stay for dinner? Well, it's hard to say no, isn't it? You know, it's where you're put upon. It's like, well, how do I say no to this kid? Maybe you don't have enough to go around that night. Maybe you have another guest planned, you know. The topic here is fait accompli. And I, uh, fait accompli, I really tried to pronounce that right. It's a French term. It means an accomplished fact, a thing already done. I got this from dictionary.com and also the free dictionary.com. It's a French phrase meaning an accomplished fact used to mean something that has already been done and cannot be altered. Presumptuous sins often have this element of fait accompli where it's a done deal and now you can't undo it. And it's like desirable because something you want is is over there in that zone where it's locked in. Here's some examples of fait accompli. It's an element at play in presumptuous sins and it's a tendency to create tough situations which are difficult or impossible to do. How about the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband? Fait accompli. Now David felt somehow in some place in his mind, he felt, okay, now I can take her. How about getting married without the approval of the parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're married now. Now you've got to accept it. A lot of young couples don't realize the horror they embrace when they get married without the parents' approval. It, it does a lot of damage. Okay, um, next is a divorce. When there's a divorce there, at least one of the two people has hardened their heart. And it's like they go into a zone. Now it's it's kind of hard to undo that. I know some divorces can be undone, but uh, many of them are viewed as one and done, settled, put it behind me. What Elohim is joined together, man is unable to separate. So says Yahshua. How about the murder of Yahshua? The high priest said that it was good for the nation that one man die. They were afraid Yahshua would be too popular and lead a revolt. 
But once, he, once, once he's out of the picture, we'll be okay. Never mind the fact that he's innocent and hasn't done anything wrong. Another big one, we have this emerge often in, um, in modern events, destruction of evidence, which, which is an obstruction of justice. When you destroy the evidence of a crime or you destroy the evidence that would clear someone's name, that's extraordinarily evil. Obstruction of justice. How about the passage of foolish, hard-to-revoke laws? By the way, I saw an interesting uh, blog the other day. It said, if you vote in communism, you can't vote it out. Now, that's an example of a fait accompli. It's already deployed. It's hard to undo all that. So I saw a speech from Ronald Reagan the other day on YouTube. Back in 1966, he was talking about how these government programs often have the opposite effect of what you want. Some small town bought into a federal program. This is in the 60s, a federal program to feed the poor using surplus food. And that seems wise. You got surplus food from some source. They can't use it, don't want it. Let's give it to the poor. Turns out the paperwork involved to be in that program was so costly they discovered it was cheaper to just buy the food at the produce market and give it to the poor. But these laws get passed and they're hard to undo, aren't they? And finally, extravagant purchases. Now, some states have laws that say you can get out of sales contracts within three days. Maybe some of you have seen that if you bought a water heater or a vacuum cleaner. I think what happens is salesmen play upon these wives at home and they sell stuff, and a husband comes home and says, what did you agree to? Ah. And so um, I think those laws are traceable to that because that's where the context in which I first saw them. But extravagant purchases and, and things like that, you can't, some of this stuff you can't return. Fait accompli. Getting something locked in and make it hard to undo. Oh, by the way, look at the list. How much of that stuff is destructive on the list I just gave you? Take another look at that list. How many of these stunts involve stubbornness? The murder of Uriah, getting married without approval of parents, divorce, the murder of Abel. I accidentally skipped that earlier, I'm sorry. Cain was warned. I don't know anybody who's heard an audible voice like Cain did before a murder. Sin is at the door. It's waiting to have you, but you must overcome it. The murder of Yahshua, destruction of evidence. Many of these things are, are destructive. So is fait accompli rare? Let's go back to the traffic incident. And now you know why I put that on the screen. That's a fait accompli. This is a presumptuous sin. This guy's presuming that I'm going to back up, which would be illegal. You know, if I had time, if I could go back that night, I really wasn't in a hurry. I think I should have just sat there and called the police. I think I should have just sat there and called the police and say, officer, I'll follow any instructions you give me, but I think it's illegal for me to back up here. That's a fait accompli. I got out of my vehicle, I checked behind me, made sure it was clear, and I backed up and made room for the guy. But he really should have gone around that wider intersection. You think that's the first time he ever did that? You know, the orientation of his front cabin with my front of my car was so perfect, 
It's like, oh, this is a skilled driver. He knew how to calibrate that thing perfectly. He could have done a rendezvous in outer space. He was so accurate with that. So going through the list one more time, just the headers. Seething with anger, arrogance, presumptuousness, rebelliousness, bitterness, stubbornness, irreverence, and hate without a cause. These are some of the things that play into great transgression. You don't want to go there. Because just beyond this is the unpardonable sin. We're almost done. Presumptuous sins are selfish. They hurt people and put you in a position that's hard to undo. Presumptuous sins are all too common. I'm going to give you some tips for inoculating yourself. A lot of talk about a vaccine right now for COVID-19. Well, these are vaccines you can take to keep you away from presumptuous sins. Number one, be approachable. In James 3.17, it says, But the wisdom that is from above us is pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. There it is. Easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. It's important that you be approachable. If you have hardness of heart, you won't be approachable. If you develop the habit of being approachable, that people can come up to you and either ask you something or challenge you gently or bring something to remembrance, they, can, they might save you from a great transgression. Here's another tip. Avoid the counsel of the wicked. <clears throat> Following a crowd to do evil, that's what happened to poor old Dreyfus. We've seen it in other cases. In Psalm 71, 16, it says, I will go in the strength of the sovereign Yahweh. I will speak, I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. Purge from your mind any man-made ideas about right and wrong. Sometimes I have found myself trapped in trying so hard maybe to defend a constitutional principle that I forget, wait a minute, Yahweh has something to say here that overrules everything else. For example, the courts have ruled that, according to the Constitution, I can buy and, and enjoy pornography. But Yahweh's law says no. Purge from your mind that man-made, man-made righteousness. And finally, guard your tongue. Through James, Yahweh reveals that you can tame anything if you tame your tongue. It's in James chapter 3. I wonder if I can remember this right. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and is able to bridle the whole body. Those of you who are struggling with sin in general, anybody, Yahweh's promising you through James there, if you can tame your tongue, you can get everything under control. Because when you tame your tongue, that means your heart is tamed. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you can get into the habit to control the tongue, it takes a while, but everything else comes under control. And this brings us back to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 13. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be upright. And I shall be innocent from the great transgression And now you know why verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Yahweh, my strength and my redeemer. You get those things under control, everything else will come under control. Thanks for listening. You've been very attentive.
that Yahweh bless you abundantly 